in the fourth lesson in our series on snapshots of Jesus in John's gospel. And uh, we've come to the second chapter here, which is the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. We looked last week at verses 19 through 51 of chapter 1, the prelude to Jesus' public ministry. And now we come to the introduction of his early Galilean ministry in chapter 2 and verses 1 through 12. Verse 1 says, And on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. We pointed out last week in our study that John is conscious of the passage of time as he records the incidents in the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2. He says, verse 29 of chapter 1, The next day Jesus, uh, he saw Jesus coming to him. Verse 35, the next day John was standing. Verse 43, the next day he purposed to go to them. And altogether, there's a a span of seven days in this record. And it appears that John has selected this material and highlighted the days in order to present a new week of God's activity, so to speak, and to present what Jesus began to do in his earthly ministry as similar to the creation when he created something brand new. And, of course, that is what happened when Jesus came into the world in the incarnation and began to reveal himself. And an important part of that self-revelation happened on the last of these seven days, which John refers to as the third day after the one mentioned in chapter 1, verses 43 through 51. On that day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, now, Paul, if you'll turn the projector on, please. Uh, we've got a map of Palestine here. Cana of Galilee is right there. And uh, Nazareth is right there. Cana is nine miles north of Nazareth. And so it's very probable that uh, this couple that was getting married in Cana knew Jesus since he lived and grew up only nine miles to the south. The mother of Jesus was invited, and Jesus also was invited, verse 2, and his disciples to the wedding. Um, We know that Jesus had five disciples at this time. He hadn't called the others yet. There were just those mentioned in the first chapter of John. So Jesus gets this wedding invitation, and he decides to go to the wedding. And uh, this uh, helps us to appreciate about Jesus that uh, he was involved socially in the lives of people around about him. He was not a recluse from society. You know, some people have had the idea that in order to be really godly, you have to get away from people. And uh, Jesus never did that. He never retreated from the society of people, but he lived a perfect life right in the middle of all the social hubbub of his day, and uh, appreciated contact with other people. John the Baptist was not as socially involved. He was more of a, uh, he lived in the wilderness, you know. He was kind of a recluse, really. Uh, And when uh, the religious leaders compared Jesus and John, they pointed out the difference between their lifestyles. But Jesus being very involved in the lives of people and even attending weddings to rejoice with those who rejoice, indicates that uh, godliness is uh, not incompatible with uh, social activity and being around people. 
In fact, uh, that's, a, that's a big part of it, I think. Uh, weddings typically in Jesus' day lasted for several days, uh, usually seven days. So um, this was going on for some time, probably. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to Jesus, they have no wine. Wine was the customary beverage in New Testament times, but it was not the, the high-proof type of drink that it is today. It was uh, generally diluted three parts of water to one part of wine. Um, but nonetheless, if you drank enough of it, you could get drunk. And uh, this was cust- the customary beverage, but uh, at this wedding, the wine gave out. They ran out of wine. It must have been a lot of people show up, more than the bride and groom anticipated. It was a It was the groom's responsibility to provide a feast for his guests. And if they ran out of food and drink, it would have been considered very bad socially. It would indicate that this man really wasn't thinking ahead and that he hadn't planned for his friends. So it was an embarrassing situation that arose here. And we'll see that Jesus comes to the rescue to to help his friend. They have no wine here. Um, they, uh, they appeal. Uh, Jesus, uh, the mother of Jesus, said to him, they have no wine. Obviously, she's coming to him because she expects him to do something. There's no indication that Jesus ever did a miracle before this one. Uh, it's not recorded in Scripture. So we can't be sure that she expected him to do something miraculous, but obviously she's expected him to do something. And it's interesting that she would turn to him at this time. Uh, She had obviously come to believe that he could help. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what do I have to do with you? My hour is not yet come. That sounds like a real put-down in English, doesn't it? But actually in the Greek text, it's uh, much more mild. Uh, The title woman here was not a disparaging one. But Jesus could have called her his mother, and it would have been warmer. But I think he didn't here, deliberately, because he was relating to her now, not as her son, as much as her Lord. And while he's not putting her down, he is addressing her as as a woman. And uh, he says, what do I have to do with you? The implication of that is, uh, don't try and direct me in this. Uh, Don't try and tell me what to do. Jesus had been told what to do by his parents as he was growing up, of course, and he was an obedient child. But uh, now Jesus was beginning his ministry, and he had to follow the instructions of his father rather than his mother, his heavenly father. And so he reminds Mary of that. My hour has not yet come, he says. Throughout John's gospel, we're going to read Jesus referring to his hour. The hour has not come yet. And often that refers to his death. But here it's the hour in which he is going to act. And the picture is that Jesus is operating on a, on a schedule. And the schedule has been set by his heavenly father. And so he does not want to anticipate or go behind the timing that God has for him. He's very sensitive to 
his father's will, and he realizes it's not quite the time yet uh, to do something about this situation. So his mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And in this statement, she gives a great example to us, of course, of submissiveness to Jesus. She doesn't try argue with him. Uh, she doesn't uh, get all huffy about, uh, well, you know, I'm your mother, and you ought to, you ought to follow your mother, uh, which mothers sometimes do. And uh, she doesn't become directive. Um, but she simply points others to Jesus. And that's a great model for us. She gets these servants aside, and she kind of thinks that he's going to do something about this because Jesus would help wherever he could. And so she tells these servants uh, to follow his directions. Whatever he says to you, do it. Good advice for us in pointing others to, to the Savior as well. Do whatever he tells you to do. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. These were large water pots that uh, Jews usually had on the outside of their homes that they filled with water to use in the ritual cleansings that had become traditional among the Jews. Um, Later on, you remember in Jesus' ministry, some of the religious leaders criticized Jesus because his disciples didn't wash their hands enough. And uh, it was customary among the Jews to wash their hands over and over again, especially before they ate, which is, of course, a good idea. But it was uh, a part of their ritual cleansing. And they felt that uh, they had to do this to please God. This was not taught in the Old Testament. It had just become traditional. And Jesus criticized the religious leaders. He said, you're far more concerned about observing these traditions about washing your your hands and your pots and your jugs and everything you use. But the more important elements of the law, righteousness and peace, you neglect, he said. So that custom is kind of hinted at here with these references to the stone water pots, stone because they didn't absorb the water as, as earthenware vessels would. And uh, there are these six pots standing out there. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. They're good servants. (laughs) They do what he says. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. Again, they follow his directions. probably don't have a clue as to what he's, he's going to do here. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, somewhere along the line, either in the pots or on the way to the, the table, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when men have drunk freely... Then that which is poorer. But you have kept the good wine until now. What you've served later in the feast, when people's taste buds are not as sensitive, uh, is even better than what you provided at first. Uh, What's the explanation for that? 
It was quite common for people to get drunk at weddings. And some people have taken occasion to criticize Jesus because he provided wine for this wedding when uh, people could have gotten drunk from it. But really, that's very typical of what God does for us. He, he gives his good gifts to people, and the fact that we misuse his gifts is not his fault, it's our fault. We turn around and criticize God for doing things, but it's really we who are responsible for abusing his gifts often. It is perfectly all right for them to, to drink wine. The Bible condemns uh, immoderacy in drinking, but uh, wine was a common table beverage at the time and taken in, med in moderation, it was uh, perfectly acceptable. And the, mind, the man says, uh, you have kept the good wine until now. And I think this is just typical of what Jesus does and what God does. He provides the best for people, even better than what we provide for ourselves and for one another, you see? And it's interesting, too, that uh, this was wine. It takes a while to produce wine. Wine has to ferment over time. And yet Jesus created wine just like that. Just like we read in the story of creation in Genesis 1, that he created trees fully formed with seed in them with the appearance of age, you see. And so those present on this occasion, I think, would have had questions about what kind of uh, a thing is this? He has done something like what God did when he created the universe, when he created trees and shrubs and animals fully formed. Is this the creator? Is this the creator that we have here? I, I, I doubt seriously that anybody thought that, but they should have thought in view of what Jesus did. And he provided something that brought great joy to people. Wine is, uh, is something that makes people feel good. It brings joy into their life. It did that in biblical times. And uh, Jesus said in John 10, 10, I'm come that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. God wants to give good gifts to his children, and he does that consistently, and we, we see Jesus behaving that way here. It also may imply that Jesus is introducing a better order of things into the world here. Uh, he's creating something similar but of a better quality than already existed. In the Old Testament, the prophets spoke of a banquet beginning the messianic age that Messiah would introduce in the world. And uh, it's interesting, too, that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, uh, he participates in a banquet and provides the wine for that banquet, kind of a foreview of the banquet that will take place when Jesus Christ comes back to the earth and sets up his kingdom on the earth the millennial banquet that will inaugurate the thousand-year rule of Christ on the earth. This is just kind of a, a foreview of it. And John says, then, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
This was the first miracle with significance, a sign, that Jesus did, according to John's record, and probably the first one that he did in his public ministry period. And in this, he manifested his glory, his glory as the creator, his glory as the transformer of substances. You remember that one of the first miracles, the first miracle that Moses did in Egypt was turning water to blood. It was a destructive miracle. But here, it's a positive miracle. He changes water into something better. And so it contrasts Moses and Jesus, who John contrasted in chapter 1. The law came by Moses. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. Uh, it, It glorifies Jesus by helping us to realize that he can do the things that the creator of the universe did. In fact, he himself did long ago, and he can transform the quality of things into something better. And Jesus is always doing that today in the lives of people. He is transforming the quality of life into something better. He longs to do that, and he will do it unless we prohibit him from doing it. That is typical of him, and it is a manifestation of his glory. And the result of that was that the disciples believed in him. There was a coal miner who had been a a hard-drinking man. He was an alcoholic, and he became a Christian. And he went to a lecture in which an atheist was trying to debunk the Bible. And the atheist pointed to this miracle as an evidence that the Bible was incorrect. And he said, it was, it's just totally impossible to do this. And uh, anybody in his right mind wouldn't believe this story. And uh, afterwards, the, the coal miner was talking to this man, and he said, I believe that story. And the atheist said, well, how can you believe that God, that Jesus changed uh, water into wine? And the coal miner said, well, because in my house... He's changed wine into furniture, clothing, food for my children. And that's what Jesus does. He changes the quality of things and makes things better. And for that reason, his disciples believed in him. Not for the first time. We read that they believed before, but their faith is strengthened in him. They continue to believe in him. And as we, his disciples today, consider the snapshots of Jesus that we find in this gospel, that should be the result for us, too. Our faith in him is strengthened. We are encouraged to believe in him, to trust in him further. And if we haven't done so, to trust in him for the first time as well. After this, verse 12, Jesus went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Now, if you'll, oh, it's still up there, okay. Um, Capernaum is uh, right there. So here's, here's Nazareth down here. Here's Cana. Here's Capernaum, 13 miles 
from Cana to Capernaum to the northeast. And so Jesus goes there next. And we know from other gospel accounts and from this one too that Jesus really set up his headquarters for his ministry in Galilee, the northern part of Palestine, in the town of Capernaum. And uh, this may be a brief visit to the town, or it may be the time when he really moved there and uh, set up uh, his, his living quarters there, whatever they were. His, his mother went with him, and his brothers, two of his brothers, wrote two of the, God, of the books of the New Testament that we have, James and Jude, were Jesus' half-brothers, born after he was born. He also had sisters, we know from the other gospel records, born after Jesus. Of course, he was born by a virgin, so the others were born after him. And they stayed there a few days. Joseph is not mentioned here, and it's probable that Joseph, his father, had died at this time because he's never mentioned in any of the records of Jesus' life and ministry after his, his uh, infancy and young childhood. Then verse 13 gives us Jesus' first visit to Jerusalem. And all that we read in chapter 2, verse 13, through chapter 3, verse 36, is going to take place in Jerusalem. But the rest of this chapter is devoted to an incident that uh, involved the temple. And the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. The Mosaic law commanded all Jewish males who were adults to go to Jerusalem three times a year to observe the important feasts of the nation. And Passover was one of those. So Jesus, in compliance with that, he perfectly obeyed God's requirements for the Israelites in the Mosaic Law, went up to Jerusalem to observe this feast. The Passover, of course, was the commemoration of God, God's redemption of the Israelites out of Egyptian bondage in the past. Now, geographically, of course, Jerusalem is down, it's south. But whenever we read of people going to Jerusalem, we always read that they go up to Jerusalem, <laughs> wherever they live because it describes the city topographically. Jerusalem was higher than the other cities. And it was also the place where God was. And so it's described as going up to Jerusalem for that reason. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated. Jesus goes into the temple courtyard in Jerusalem. And... Uh, there he finds an oriental bazaar. He finds all kinds of animals. He finds money changers with their tables. And the courts are just littered with these business people. God had said that the courtyard of the temple was to be a place of quiet and prayer where Israelites and Gentiles could come to worship him. But the Jewish leaders had turned it into a, a place of merchandise. Uh, it's a flea market. It's full of animals. And you can just uh, imagine the sounds and the smells and all the activity that's going on there. Money changers was there, were there because the Jews only accepted Tyrian coins as offerings in the temple because Tyrian coins were 
of the purest silver. And so Jews who came from other parts, and even Jerusalem, who had Jerusalem coins, had to change their money before they made a contribution to the temple. And of course, there was a little off the top for the money changers. They made a little off of it. That's why they were there. And of course, those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves were doing that because people would come to offer these animals as sacrifices, and it was just convenient for them to buy them right there on the spot rather than leading them through the streets and from whatever town they came. So the Jews were uh, making a little money. They were good businessmen, even though they were not good followers of God. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overthrew their tables. Now this was a, this was a very mild act, really. A scourge of cords would not have hurt anybody. So Jesus was not drawing blood here. He was simply clearing the courtyard of those in it and discouraging this kind of action from then on. He wasn't whipping them, but uh, it actually previewed something that the prophet Malachi predicted would happen when Messiah came. In Malachi 3, 1 through 3, Malachi said that the Messiah would purify the sons of Levi, that he would purify the priests and the Levites in Israel when he came. And here, he was not dealing with the people, but he was dealing with the animals, mainly, and uh, the merchants, and he's cleaning up the temple, doing something very similar to what Malachi predicted the Messiah would do. So, again, a perceptive Jew might have thought to himself, well, I remember that passage from Malachi. This is similar to what the Messiah is going to do when he comes. He's going to clean things up. And to those who were selling the doves, he said, Take these things away. Stop making my father's house a house of merchandise. Whoa, my father's house. Who does he think he is? Well, we know who he thought he was. He thought he was the son of God. And he referred to God as his father and his father's house. He's uh, hinting at his authority here and his relationship with God which was really different because in the Old Testament, the Jews were encouraged to think about God as the father of their nation, but not as their father personally. And his, and his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for thy house will consume me. They remembered David's words in Psalm 69, verse 9. David wrote, the zeal for thy house will consume me because, as you may remember during the later portion of David's life, he became very interested in building the temple. He collected money. He donated money out of his own bank account to the building of the temple. He uh, had the people lay aside a lot of money from their taxes to build the temple. And he almost became consumed with this project. So much so that his sons, um, his sons, Absalom and Adonijah rebelled against him and uh, said that uh, our father has kind of uh, forsaken his responsibilities. Uh, 
we'll be glad to lead you, Israelites. And so they were able to get some support in Israel because their father had uh, neglected some of his responsibilities as king and had become so absorbed in the building of the temple that this project was consuming him. Well, it's interesting that the same thing happened to Jesus, really, because for the honor of, of God's name and his house, the house that he was building, Jesus was consumed as well by his adversaries. Jesus was so focused on what God was doing and was so intent that people uh, come into relationship with God and build the house of God in a metaphorical sense that uh, the Jews said, we can't handle this anymore. Uh, We've got to do away with this man. And even here, they see the zeal for the temple that Jesus shows as he cleans it up here. The 17th century English pastor, Richard Baxter, said he preached with great intensity because he saw himself as a dying man ministering to dying people. He always spoke as if he were preaching his last sermon and if his listeners, as if his listeners were hearing their last message. Great way to preach. And what a schedule he maintained for 50 years. On each Monday and Tuesday, he spent seven hours instructing the children of his parish, his community in England, not omitting even one child. On Wednesday, he went from house to house to make sure that the material needs of the widows, the aged, and the infirm were met. And during the rest of the week, he prepared his sermons and he wrote books, a total of 160 volumes. As a result of his ministry, the town of Kittyminster was transformed. It had been a place full of sexual immorality and other vices, but it became a village in which almost every household honored God, read the Bible, and prayed. Just a classic example of a transformation of a whole community through the result of this godly and persistent pastor whose zeal, his consuming zeal for the Lord, burned him up, consumed him. What a great example Baxter is to us, uh, the servants of God today, to to use the time that God has given us to build the, the structure. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That is the house of God that God is building today. And that is the house that you and I should be zealous to build, to contribute our little piece to the construction of what God is doing on the earth. Verse 18, And the Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show us, seeing that you do these things? Oh, boy. What they should have done, of course, was fall to their knees and ask God to forgive them for corrupting the temple courtyard as they had. But no, they don't repent. Instead, they ask Jesus for some proof of his authority to do this. They're dodging the issue completely. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 says, Jews require a sign. That is, typically, this was the response of Jews in Jesus' day and in the first century. They're always asking for 
some sign of authority. And eventually Jesus said, I'm not going to give you any more signs. You've had all the signs you can handle. Uh, the only other sign I'm going to give you is that I'm going to rise after three days in the tomb, just like Jonah got out of that fish after three days. What sign do you show us? This is just, this is a red herring, you see. Jesus answered and said to them, all right, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Destroy the temple, this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, he used a different word for temple than appears in verse 14. The one in 14 is a word that describes the whole temple complex, including the courtyard. But the word in verse 19 is a word that refers to the temple structure itself, the holy place. And so Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Later, Jesus' enemies used this claim against him. You remember, they said, he said, I will destroy the temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But that's not what Jesus said at all. He said, you destroy the temple, and I'll raise it up. And, of course, he wasn't referring to the temple that stood there. He was referring to himself, as it becomes clear later on, as we'll see. Well, why didn't Jesus just, just make it clear? Why did he use this enigmatic language, comparing his body to the temple? Well, I think he did it this way because these men showed no repentance. They had no interest in repenting and getting right with God. And Jesus typically gave people with that attitude no more revelation. This was the purpose of the parables. He spoke in parables to hide truth from unbelievers as well as to reveal it to believers. And so he gives this kind of parabolic statement. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. But in the process, he also hints that a new temple is coming. In 70 AD, that temple that Herod built was destroyed. And the book of Hebrews tells us that the new place of worship that God has created is the body of Jesus Christ. Not the church, but Jesus Christ himself. He is that new temple. The Jews, therefore, said it took 46 years to build this temple. And you were raised it up in three days. It wasn't even finished in Jesus' day. It wasn't finished for years after this. But this is one of the chronological references in the book that help us to date when this happened. It had been under construction for 46 years, so that means that this was 30 A.D. And it was still being renovated. Herod remodeled the temple that Nehemiah built when he returned after the exile. And it was still under construction in Jesus' day. And the Jews said, what you're saying is impossible. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to do it in three days? Ridiculous. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. He himself is the temple. Chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we read. He is the site of worship. God incarnate is the one we worship. 
Jesus said, it doesn't matter, Samaritan woman, whether you worship in Samaria or whether the Jews worship in Jerusalem. There's coming a time, and it's already here, when the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. They will worship me. They will worship God through me. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture. Oh, what Scripture? Old Testament prophecy about Messiah rising from the dead. Like Psalm 16, verse 6. And they believed the word which Jesus had spoken on this occasion. When Jesus was raised, they remembered this event. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, beholding the signs which he was doing. So the miracle at Cana of Galilee was just the the first of many. Jesus performed a lot of other miracles here when he was visiting Jerusalem at, at this time and from now on throughout his ministry. John says that only a fraction of the miracles that Jesus performed have been re- recorded in Scripture. And many people believed in his name or trusted in him because of the miracles that had significance that he was doing. Undoubtedly, some people, when they saw these miracles, remembered passages from the Old Testament that prophesied that when Messiah would come, he would open the eyes of the blind. He would heal the lame. Uh, He would forgive people's sins. Passages like that, and they began to put two and two together, and they, they trusted in him. But Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. Now, the same word translated entrusting here in the Greek text is the same word that's translated believed in the previous word verse. Many believed in him, but he was not believing in them. Or he, they entrusted themselves to him, but he did not entrust himself to them. See, there's a contrast here. For he knew all men, and because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus not only knew human nature, like nobody else, having created people, but he also knew individual hearts. He knew what was in the heart of every individual. And he knew that people could not be trusted. And so he did not entrust himself to them. He entrusted himself to his heavenly Father, but others entrusted themselves to him appropriately. Now, what does the, the chapter 2 show us about Jesus? What are some things about Jesus that we see in this chapter? Well, five things occurred to me. First of all, as creator and transformer, he has the power to change the quality of things. Wine and people, life. And if you're here today and you're looking for a better life, Jesus is the person who can bring that to pass. That's what he has been doing throughout history. That is what he is doing in the lives of all of his children. He is transforming our lives into something better, not something worse, 
Becoming a Christian is not a step backward. It is a giant leap forward because he is transforming and creating things in us, shaping our lives. Second, he delights to bless and bring joy to life as he provided wine for this wedding. So he, he, he delights to enter into the joys of his people and to even heighten those joys by giving us greater joy and satisfaction in life. I don't know if you saw in the paper yesterday in the religion section of the Dallas Morning News, there was a, an article about the Jews' reaction to the Southern Baptists' initiative to evangelize them. And reference was made to the Hindus and the Muslims as well that are kind of bracing themselves for these Southern Baptists who they anticipate are going to come to them with the gospel. And uh, in the course of the article, I was interested to, to find over and over again the repetition of this phrase that the, the Baptists are sharing their faith. And that's a common way that we describe witnessing for Christ, isn't it? We share our faith. But really, it's much more than that. It's sharing good news. It's not just that I've got a faith, and you've got a faith, and I share my faith with you, hoping that you'll take my faith. It's that we have great news for people, news that they won't get any other way, that there is someone available who will transform their lives, who will give them a better quality of life, who will bring joy and satisfaction into their experience. That's what we see Jesus doing here, and that's what he does consistently. Third, he is the object and the facilitator of true worship. He is the one that we worship. We don't go to an earthly temple now. We go to Jesus Christ, and he is the one that we worship And he is the facilitator of worship to God. He is the mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And fourth, we see Jesus hiding truth from the proud here. And it's a reminder and a warning to us that if we fail to respond to the truth that God gives us, we can't expect to have more truth. We can't expect to understand things further. There needs to be a reception and a receptivity to what God has revealed already if there is going to be more light or what Jesus says to us will be very confusing and incomprehensible as it was to the Jews. And finally, the very simple lesson that Jesus is a very attractive person. He draws people to himself. People come to Jesus to ask for help. They enjoy his company at a wedding They seek him out in the temple courtyards. They listen to what he says because he is an attractive person. And as we read this book, we will find him increasingly attractive, attracting us. Christianity is not just believing a bunch of doctrines. It's not just subscribing to a creed of faith. It is falling in love with a person, Jesus Christ. And I hope that above everything else in our study of this book, that we will gain a greater appreciation for the attractiveness of our Savior 
as we see him doing the things that he does in this book. We love you this morning, Lord Jesus. You have brought joy into our lives. You transform our lives. You are the center, the object of our worship. And we pray that we will gain an even greater appreciation of you and love for you every day that we live. Help us, we pray, to respond to the light that you have given us appropriately so that we can continue to grow and can continue to appreciate you in all your greatness. Give us a desire, too, to share you with those that don't know you, to bring the good news of the gospel to people. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen.